0: speech by ellen wilkinson this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by lucy perry
1: comments by sir arthur salter read by peter yearsley
0: speech in favour of ratifying the charter of the united nations given to the house of commons on the 23rd of august 1945 by the minister of education ellen wilkinson the prime minister has asked me to intervene in this debate not as minister of education but as the only other member of the present cabinet who was in the labour delegation the minister of works completed the labour trio but while i do not speak as minister of education i feel i must just say this the most destructive atomic bomb yet discovered is the human mind Today we see the trail of destruction that its misapplied energy has produced Many speakers in this debate so far have emphasized that we must harness this newly developed weapon, this newly discovered energy, for the purposes of peace, and not for war. To do that, it is not only necessary that we should produce first-class scientists and technicians. We must educate a whole generation of men and women to be fit to use the immense powers that are about to be discovered. On 6th August, 1945, a new era opened for mankind, the era of atomic energy. The only thing comparable to it in our history is the discovery of steam power a hundred and fifty years ago and how small a thing that seems compared to what we are now facing then very belatedly reluctantly and in the most parsimonious spirit the nation started the education of the people who had to use that power now we see the result of that parsimony and we must learn the lesson if we are to reap the fruits of this charter we are discussing We have to be willing for big new advances and a much bigger conception of the whole process of the education of our communities. I wish to emphasize that I am not saying this as a sales talk for my department. I am just issuing a blunt warning. I will reply to as many as I can of the interesting points raised in yesterday's debate in the course of a speech, which I do not wish to be too long. But it was thought that the House might first like to have a picture of the very human assembly which produced the charter we are now discussing after that i will deal briefly but in more detail than he was able to do with the social and economic council the section of the work to which the prime minister referred in passing yesterday returning to england while the conference was still in progress i was struck with the great difference in the attitude of the press and of the country generally in this country as compared with america it is true that we in britain were very preoccupied just then with our own affairs but san francisco meant a lot to america there were two very strong emotional reasons for that very dramatically and in very tragic circumstances a most beloved president whose presence was terribly missed at the conference had just died he had set all his hopes for the peace of mankind on that conference and it was felt by us all but especially by the americans that that was to be his legacy to mankind even those who had opposed him most bitterly when he was alive felt perhaps because of that that the conference must be a success also america is a very neighbourly country and they felt perhaps a little uncomfortable lest the fact that they had kept out of the league of nations in the first world war was at any rate one of the factors that went to the making of the second i must say that both the government and the people of the united states i am sure the right honourable gentlemen will agree with me did everything they humanly could to make the conference a success and certainly the city of san francisco performed wonders of hospitality one of the occasions they arranged i think none of us who were there will ever forget it was a night when to a vast audience of delegates and diplomats the great violinist Menuhin played beethoven's violin concerto i think the feeling swept through us then that somehow in that great music the torch of the culture of the old world was being passed on through that young genius to the new world that we were assembled in san francisco to bring to birth to the ordinary folk of san francisco every delegate wearing the beautiful conference badge seemed somehow a being set apart specially consecrated to the work of bringing peace to mankind one could hardly go into a shop without finding oneself the centre almost of a public meeting and i think it was that tremendous friendliness that belief that we had come to bring something of the message of peace to mankind that helped us so much in the conference itself the prime minister has paid many tributes very well-deserved tributes to his colleagues particularly to the right honourable gentleman the late foreign secretary but i think our present prime minister who was then deputy prime minister also deserves a tribute i remember his first press conference american press conferences are fearful things they are battles of wits between hard-boiled american pressmen and hard-pressed american statesmen the deputy prime minister assumed that his audience were sensible men with a job to do to get news he gave it to them and he said no when he could not and explained why this eminently businesslike way of dealing with the situation appeared to make a journalistic sensation one of the most famous of american commentators said to me after that press conference your british labour party has got something there at the recent general election the british people showed that they agreed with that opinion one of the biggest problems of the conference here i know i am treading on rather delicate ground was the under-representation of europe all the states on and bordering the american continent were represented while many european states were occupied by the enemy the honourable and gallant member for west dorset major digby asked about the membership at san francisco the conference by definition was an assembly of peace-loving states and no state could be considered peace-loving on the conference formula unless it had declared war by first april nineteen forty five so neutrals who had not declared war on anybody did not come within the definition we had twenty-three american countries and that is including the forty-eight united states as one compared with twelve european countries in justice i must make it clear that the americans did their best not to take advantage of that fact but by sheer weight of numbers it was a fact and the debates on some of the most difficult problems took place in a rather unreal atmosphere As regards the future, the United Nations had already said at the Potsdam Conference that neutrals, and even enemy states, will be allowed to become members at an early date, provided that their governments are recognized by the United Nations, and that they show that they wish to carry out the obligations of the Charter, and that we can trust them to do this. The main attention that San Francisco has received in this country, and also in this debate, has naturally been centered on the composition and power of the Security Council and the machinery for the prevention of disputes and dealing with them when they have occurred the speeches of my honourable friends the members for edmonton mr durbin and eton and slough mr b levy and the honourable member for cheltenham mr lipson all dealt with this point but as the foreign secretary will himself be replying to-night the whole of these correlated questions and the question of the veto which is part of it will be dealt with in extenso by him i want to deal with what i think is something even more fundamental and which has been raised by many members that is the establishment of positive international action and collaboration to tackle the basic causes of international unrest and dislocation i may in passing say here to the honourable member for cambridge university mr wilson harris with whose very helpful maiden speech i will deal later that his majesty's government have been very much alive to the points he raised about the secretariat and they will certainly do all they can to ensure both the efficiency and independence of that secretariat one of the great weaknesses of the league of nations was that it did not succeed in dealing with those essential economic problems which lie at the root of war had positive international planning been in existence to prevent that world economic crisis the circumstances which enabled hitler and his fellow dictators to rise to power might never have arisen the peoples of europe it seems clear to us now only flocked into the camps of the aggressor when they really saw no hope of employment or security anywhere else and unless this time the enormous social and economic problems which we are facing now as the legacy of the war are tackled on an international basis and a planned basis and unless jobs and food and homes are provided not by individuals but by common action it seems to us on this side of the house and i am sure the others will not disagree that no security measures yet devised will prevent new demagogues arising to plunge the world into misery and into further war that is why in my view the chapters of the charter dealing with international economic and social cooperation, dealing in fact with the economic and social council the declaration concerning non self-governing territories which we include in the term international trusteeship are really among the most important achievements of san francisco i am proud to recall the part that was played by the british delegates and the dominions delegates who thought out these problems very carefully in the preliminary meetings we had here in london i think it was a happy circumstance that the committee dealing with social and economic planning was presided over by a very distinguished indian for if there is a country in this world that does need to talk economics instead of some of the things that it spends its time talking about it is india The United Nations stand committed by Article 55 of the Charter to joint and separate action to promote, I will quote textually, a, higher standards of living, full employment, and conditions of economic progress and development, b, to the solution of international economic, social and health problems, and international cultural and educational cooperation, and c, universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all, without distinction as to race, sex, language or religion. I admit that the world has a long way to go and many difficulties to overcome before those brave words can become a reality, but they must be made into a reality. It is really the worst form of deception to have high-sounding phrases about a new world, leading the people of the world to believe that something on these lines is going to be done and letting the people see the diplomats and statesmen going on in the same old way we really have tried to see ways by which this declaration can be translated into action and to have a machine to do the job because words are meaningless without the machine to implement them the economic and social council has been created as one of the principal organs of the united nations under the authority of the general assembly it is no use criticising that now it has not of course begun in any real sense The main thing about that council is its tremendous possibilities for the future, if properly used. I think we ought to put our minds to thinking how it can be used, rather than criticising the instrument as it is at the moment, and before it can be tried. Obviously, the status and success of the council's work will depend on the constructive lead that is being given by just those nations which, by virtue of their economic position, can make or mar successful international planning. In the council, representatives of the various economic systems now functioning in the world will meet together and it is important that we are quite realistic about this it is no use pretending that because people say the same words they mean the same thing to all the different countries surely now we are no longer dealing with an entirely pacifist world we are dealing with a world in which very different economic systems are flourishing side by side it is surely the gospel of despair to say that that must necessarily lead to clashes and to war i think people who have very different ideas on how their countries should be run and who are running their countries according to those ideas will just have to get together to find out ways by which in the interests of all they can achieve international collaboration we in this country were credited at san francisco and i am not quite sure whether this is regarded as a compliment or not with standing midway between the two extremes of the economic system if so the greater our responsibility to find means by which they can work together under the authority of the general assembly the economic and social council is the organ responsible for entering into agreements with the various specialized agencies that is a technical term now which are playing a role of increasing importance in building up experience in the various forms of international cooperation. this matter was raised in the debate by the senior burgess for oxford university sir a salter who is dealing with his experiences of this great problem of international planning and cooperation the ilo the food and agricultural organization unrra the proposed international monetary fund are all forms of planning which will help us on these lines the council will also have the task of coordinating their activities and will of course initiate negotiations among the states if it is felt that new agencies are needed for this purpose I am hopeful that one will come from the United Nations Conference, which, on the initiative of the Allied Ministers of Education, is to be held in London this autumn. Of course, the Allied Ministers' Conference was started by the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Member for Saffron Walden, Mr. R. A. Butler, when he was Minister of Education in the Coalition Government about two years before San Francisco, which, I think, proves the Right Honourable Gentleman's foresight. The British delegation desired to see the International Labour Office in view of its great record and achievements formerly associated with the new organization there were difficulties and certain questions were raised as to its constitution but i understand that changes are being considered at the present time to meet the difficulties that were raised we in this country and the trade unions especially are aware that the ilo has in the past done much to raise the standard of life and the conditions of the working people in many different countries and quite frankly We understand that conditions in this country too depend for their preservation and improvement on the general standards of living throughout the world. As an agency for giving detailed and practical effect to many of the ideas and policies of the World Organization, the ILO, because of its experience, has a great contribution to make. Whether it continues to work under that name, whether some different agency with the same name is used, or whether the same agency works under another name, The things which the ILO represents must be part of the new organisation. These are not the only forms of economic planning. We are at the end of a great war, and we have seen in the course of that war many other experiments in international and economic planning on the very widest scale. The military authorities of the United Nations have learned to work together in great detail. That has been even more difficult than getting politicians to work together. But they have done it, not only in planning warlike operations, but also in dealing with the economic problems which the liberation of Europe, and now of Asia, are constantly bringing to their attention. Many of the functions exercised by SHAEF on the economic side are already being sadly missed, especially in Western Europe, and UNRRA, the first body of the United Nations to attempt to handle these problems in practice, has a role very strictly limited in scope. As has been said, some of us who are the last people in the world to be considered militarists may yet miss the speed with which the military authorities have been able to handle some of these apparently insoluble problems well they are men who now have experience the change of clothes does not after all take their experience out of their minds and hearts and we hope that the best of these men will be available for the work that is rapidly developing in europe before all this work is allowed to disappear it is clear that some other agency of a more permanent and constructive nature must be developed to coordinate all this vast work of rehabilitation and reconstruction and of course it must be on a much more permanent basis than that which is necessary with the rapid improvisation of the military mind the nucleus of such an agency may well be found to exist in the emergency european economic council and in the various ad hoc advisory bodies that have been set up in connection with it in other regions further afield Much spade work has already been done in international economic cooperation and planning. The Middle East Supply Council, for example, has achieved great results in planning trade and shipping, supplying technical services to agriculture and industry, and dealing with problems of pest control. Those are just a handful of the many jobs they are doing, and doing with success, in areas which may cover as many as a dozen quite independent countries. We have also had experience, jointly with the United States, in the Caribbean Commission, which is at present dealing with just those problems which are arising out of the war, problems such as crop diversification, labour distribution, reemployment, monetary problems, and all the rest. this could very easily develop into a fully-fledged body for economic planning. Australia and New Zealand have invited the United Kingdom, America, and France to cooperate in the working of the South Seas Regional Economic Commission to secure the welfare and advancement of the native peoples in the Pacific. The Honourable Member for North Islington, Dr Hayden Guest, raised the importance of this development in Africa. In West Africa there has been close consultation with the French and the Belgian governments, and that is obviously essential to the satisfactory economic development of that area. We must see that all this machinery is not dissipated, as this work is very important. It is so easy to think, when any kind of machinery is set up, when it is working and dealing with its problems, that if only you just scrap that machine and get together half a dozen sensible men, as every speaker thinks, like himself, how one could cut through red tape and all the rest of it. The newspapers are going to say, what is the use of all this bureaucratic machinery? And we have to be on our guard against that kind of propaganda. When we set up these economic planning bodies and give them a job to do, and when they are building up their experience, so long as they are tackling the problems, they should be left to tackle them and not, as so often is the case, be pestered by other bodies of a similar nature being pushed into the same field, with inevitable muddle and friction that arises in these cases.
1: I entirely agree that we must keep and adapt this very complex machinery of executive bodies. What I am concerned with is whether the government are considering, with our major allies, whether they would put at the top of this machine something like the Economic Council, which can coordinate and give direction with power it is not a matter of finding a certain number of wise men it is a matter of getting together people who are vested with power and who can transmit energy of consistent quality
0: that is the intention of the economic and social council let us remember that that is where governments are represented
1: ultimately perhaps but we have in this next year in fact in these next months work which certainly the economic and social council will not be prepared to direct and i do earnestly press upon the government the necessity for having a body from which power and policy can emanate
0: i appreciate the right honourable gentleman's view i would point out however that as he said it is an immediate question and what i am dealing with is the machinery that was set up as the result of the san francisco conference quite obviously We were not dealing with just the immediate planning problems that are arising out of the war. I need not say to the Right Honourable Gentleman that if he wishes to do a little propaganda on those lines, the Foreign Secretary will be speaking at a later hour, and the opportunity will be there for him. Speaking again about the Economic and Social Council, I want to point out also that it has a wide variety of powers and duties. It may make reports and recommendations to the General Assembly. Prepared draft conventions and call international conferences it may furnish information to the security council and must give it assistance when required with the approval of the general assembly it may perform services at the request of members of the united nations and it is to be hoped that many of them will make good use of this service altogether therefore the powers and duties of the council as laid down in the charter are wide and flexible and they do provide immense opportunities for progress if and this is the if in all these questions, they are properly used, and if there is passion behind them to see that they are used. After all, it does depend on the spirit and energy put into this side of the work how far these powers are used to prevent what is really the shadow over all this, and the bogey in the back of all our minds, the bogey of another terrible international depression. This country, it seems to me, is well fitted to take the lead in seeing that this machinery— which, after all, is but an extension of much that we are doing in this country, is used to the fullest possible extent. All of these fine principles enunciated by the fifty nations at San Francisco depend on whether people are prepared strenuously to fight to see them put into practice. It is fairly obvious to all of us that there are many narrow but powerful interests who may stand in the way of operating the Charter with that energy, to put it mildly, that was so often absent from the League had this and other countries remained faithful to their pledges in the covenant and given a determined constructive lead on these economic matters a good many of the political problems that have plagued us need never have reached such tremendous and devastating proportions our international machinery is still lagging many centuries behind the developments of technical science that has nothing to do with the atomic bomb our social machinery is really not equipped to deal with the scientific progress that we have had never mind this new age of energy into which we are being ushered. I do not claim, and the government do not claim, that the Charter of the United Nations is a perfect instrument. But what we do say is that it was the best that could be achieved in the circumstances of the time, and, this is very important, it does contain within itself provisions for its own amendment and improvement. Our task now is to see that the thing works. Governments can do a lot in that way. After all, it is in governments that power rests but i feel that governments can only use that power effectively if there is a great feeling among the people that this charter does represent something that is theirs that it has been planned for them that it is not just a treaty between governments and not just another piece of international machinery about which a large amount of paper will now begin to circulate around the country i think all of us as representatives of the people whatever may be our own personal views on problems in this country are united in the view that now is the time constructively to prevent the next war and that we should not want to start thinking about it when it is already looming on the horizon we now know that papers resolutions and conferences will not stop it what then will stop it the passion of the people will stop it i think it is up to us to make this charter a success by harnessing to it the passion of the people for peace for economic security and, above all, for enabling the ordinary man and woman to build their homes and have their families, and plan ahead, instead of living under this continual menace, which is a man-made menace. Here we have, in this economic council, the possibility of laying the axe on some of the economic roots of this foul thing called war. In commending this charter to the House, I hope I have been successful in answering some of the questions which have been raised concerning it. End of speech Recording by Lucy Perry, in Bath, on November 15th, 2011.